When I was uh, in college, I owned a Toyota Tercel stick shift car. And the starter went out on it, and it took me months to be able to get that replaced. And so for months, what I would do is, as long as I didn't park going up a hill, I could push it fast enough to be able to jump in and pop the clutch and get it started. Unfortunately, on the back of that car, the previous owner had a Powered by Jesus sticker. So here I am, I'm pushing it through parking lots to try to start it, Powered by Jesus. I really ruined my witness and my testimony for the Lord. But my purpose for telling you that is that immediately this morning, here's what I'm doing with you. I'm pushing you, and I'm about to jump in and pop the clutch, and your minds have got to get into gear. So right at the very beginning this morning, look behind me, at Psalm chapter 83, because I want us to be seriously and soberly going into this sermon. There's a lot to cover. I'm going to go pretty quickly. I hope you're going to take notes. At least try to remember one of these building strategies I'm going to give you. But look at right at the beginning. Oh God, do not keep silence. So listen, have you prayed this way before? You've been through difficult times. Your enemies, our spiritual enemies are attacking. And you say, Lord, we need help. You're inviting God to deliver. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. We have people in this church going through cancer. We have people in this church losing jobs. People whose marriages are struggling. Lord, there is an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. So you hear that, right? They hate God. Our enemies hate God. And they lay crafty plans against your people. How do they do it? They consult together. Did you know that Satan and our flesh in this world are all in league together? They consult together against who? Your treasured ones. Israel in the Old Testament. The church, the true Jew in the New Testament. All who put their faith in Jesus Christ, they are against your treasured ones. And they say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more, for they conspire with one accord. This is the situation happening in your life, Christian brother and sister, right now. In fact, it's happening right now. You have enemies, you have a weak flesh, maybe you're tired from last night. Maybe you worked hard all week and your mind is already beginning to have a hard time holding on to what I'm saying. Don't think that's an accident. There was an accident literally on Cattell Street this morning. You might be thinking of that. Don't think that's not an accident. The enemy uses all of these details, all of these incidents, all of these ingredients to try to pull our faith down. Because God has enemies, they're in league with each other, they lay crafty plans against His people. We're, we're in war. And the battle rages around every single one of us. So how do you build spiritual walls? How do you repair spiritual gates when the enemies are surrounding us? Well, that's the question that we're going to try to answer today. In our passage before us, verses 15 through 23, I hope you have your Bibles open. If you didn't bring your Bible, there should be one right in front of you. Can you open that up? Let's all be in the text. You're going to need to see the very wording of the Word of God this morning. 
Because when we start in verse 15, what you're going to immediately see is this. Our spiritual enemies, they hate the light. They hate the light. They hate to be discovered. They hate to be exposed. So pay attention to verse 15 with me and let's look at what it is really saying as we launch into the scriptures. When our enemies heard that it was known to us, when our enemies heard that it was known to us, what this is, is they're, they're discovered. They no longer can, can operate in secret. They can't be covert anymore. Did you know that our spiritual enemies, they love darkness, they love the shadows, they love to be cloaked in secrecy. Rarely do we really see them clearly. Not until they're pouring through our walls. And Jesus hints at this in Matthew 13. It's not on the screen, so you're going to have to listen. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. So here's the kingdom of of heaven. There's seeds of the gospel being sowed. Maybe in your life, maybe at work, maybe at school, maybe in your neighborhood. You're, you're testifying, you're telling people about Jesus. Your life is salting the hearts of people with a seed to the gospel. But here's what he says. But while his men were sleeping, you hear that at night sleeping? Friends, there's a lot of Christians that are sleeping. A lot of brothers and sisters in Christ who were sleeping. And while they were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. There's many times that I've met with people and I've declared the gospel message to them. And you can see their eyes opening up and then they go home or they go to their friends and they hear the world's message. You can watch their eyes close. The world sows seeds. The enemy sows seeds. The enemy loves darkness. And when we bring their strategies into the light, and listen, this is why we're doing this series. This is why we're slowing down a little bit to uncover the strategies of our enemy. There's more to come. Chapters 5 and 6. But when we see their strategies and we bring them into the light and we expose them in the truth of the word of God, the enemies will flee. But being exposed is not enough. Look what verse 15 goes on to say. And that God had frustrated their plan. Their strategies were discovered. The people of Jerusalem heard that it was known to us, their plan, and that God had frustrated their plan. See, ultimately, this is a battle that God needs to fight. Do you know that our enemies, and let me review them again. You've got Satan and all of his demonic horde called fallen angels. And there's a lot of them. The Jews believed in the time of Christ there were millions upon millions of them. We don't know how many, but it's a third of them that fell, right? There's a lot of them. And they are dogging our steps. They are active in our lives. Friends, there's not any Christian that's not being dogged by these three enemies. And you've got spiritual forces. You've got the flesh, not our organic matter. That part of you that this last week said, I want my way more than I want God's way. You know what I'm saying? Can you think back over this week and see your flesh at work? When that criticism came at pride that reared up when you didn't get what you felt you deserved that anger that lashed out 
That's called the flesh, that, or, that spiritually organic matter that still is being killed by the gospel. You're going to be battling and warring against that till the day you go home to be with Christ. But you've got a third enemy. I do too. It's this world. And this world is always trying to conform us, always trying to squeeze us into its mold, always trying to get us into its pattern. You know, in Africa... In a little village, one of the people finally got enough money. People in the state sent them back some money. And they got an aluminum roof put on their home, which is an oddity in that village. Nobody had an aluminum roof. And as soon as one person got their aluminum roof, then all the neighbors began to say, well, I want an aluminum roof. And they began to go into debt with creditors that they'll never repay to be able to put roofs on house after house that were aluminum. That's the world. That's the pressure of the world. I want what they have. You've got to have it to be happy. Here comes the conforming. Here comes the pressure. We all have these enemies. They're all at work. But God is frustrating their plans. Like he says in Job, he frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. But look at verse 15. Look at the end of it. So that their plan... Or plot, he frustrated their plan. Maybe NIV, I think, says plot. Don't you find that interesting that that's a singular word? It's not plural plans or plots. I mean, we've uncovered six strategies, right? Criticism, confusion, conspiracy, discouragement, dread, distraction. Six strategies of the enemy, yet Nehemiah says that God frustrated their plan, singular, because their plan is singular. The enemies that all Christians have want to make your faith reduce and reduce until it's powerless so that you won't get on the wall and build. Did you hear that? Here's the plan. I'm going to give you what I think might be kind of insightful. Here's the plan. Your enemies want to prevent you from working in the kingdom of God. Your enemy wants you to live in this world and be of it so that you are squeezed into its mold. Your flesh wants you to say, it's too much work. There's too much cost. Follow me, Christ. I just want to be in name a Christian. I want my ticket punched. But I don't want to pick up that cross. I don't want to sacrifice daily. And your enemy that is a spiritual force wants to discourage you and tempt you and hold in front of you and me things that will pull out those flesh's desires so that you're no good to God. You're running after what your heart wants rather than what God wants. This is what his plan is to make you and me ineffective for the kingdom of God. That's his plan. If you look in chapter 1, You'll remember that Jerusalem was in great trouble and distress, great trouble and shame. That's where your enemy wants you. He wants your life falling down. He wants your walls in rubble. He wants you to be a mess so that you could be in such great trouble and shame that you'll never see how it could be rebuilt. But their plan was frustrated, and look what it says in verse 15. They all returned to the wall, each to his work. Each to his work. Christian brother and sister, can you, can you hear this for a moment? I think you know this. The moment you made it through the sheep gate on the grace of God to the cross of Christ and he saved you, 
The Spirit of God took a divine enablement called a spiritual gift and poured it into your life in the exact measure to do everything He's ever going to ask you to do. You don't need to pray today. God, I need more of that gift because I don't have enough to do what you've asked me to do. You've asked me to leave a Bible, lead a Bible study and I don't have the gift to do it. Well, God's saying, no, I have given you the gift. And I've given you enough of it, exactly enough to do everything I'm going to ask you to do. And he's given each of us gifts or giftings in order to put us on the wall of the kingdom of God and build. And maybe you're part of the wall, each to his work. Maybe you're part of the work is teaching Sunday school. Maybe it's to be on the worship team. Maybe it's serving in a political sphere, working to bring God's will to bear in the government. Maybe you're part of the wall. It might change in the future. Your giftings won't change, but the part of the wall might. You might be in college now. You might be in high school now. And your part of the wall is testifying faithfully of Christ right where you are. But in four years, in eight years, you might be in your career. It may change the part of the wall. You might be ministering to young mothers with little children right now. But in ten years, you may be ministering to middle-aged mothers. Maybe right now your part of the wall is at home rearing children in godliness or taking care of your aged parents. Whatever your part of the wall is, the enemy's plan was foiled. Discouragement, confusion, criticism, conspiracy, dread and distraction blew away like the mist and they returned to the wall each to their work. Here's how one mother in our church it's returning to the wall and to her work. You know what? She, she told me a few weeks ago. My children are to the point where I can get out of the home and minister more. And there's a lady in her church who has several young children more on the way. And I'm going to work to clean her house. I'm going to work to give her a nap. I'm going to take care of her children so that I can minister to her. That's my wall that God is telling me to report to duty for. Another lady last evening's in the midst of transition. Her children are almost all out of school and into either college or the career. She's sensing a new season of ministry coming, but she doesn't know what it is. She's asking her pastors for guidance. She wants to get on the wall. She wants to report to her work that God has gotten already laid out for her. Do you know we have two couples in our church who are sensing God's irrevocable call to Africa? And they're preparing for that. Their part of the wall is in Africa, but they're not waiting until they get to Africa to serve. They're serving here in preparation for Africa. What is God stirring you? What's he stirring in you? Whatever he's stirring in you will coincide with his divine enablement. And if you see it wisely, you'll know which part of the wall he wants you on. Last night, one of our Lafayette college students, I didn't get this until this morning. That's how slow I am. Came up four times. I, I really, I didn't even dawn on me what God was doing until this morning. Four times he came up to me and said, Tim, where can I serve? What can I do? What do you need help with? 
I kept saying, go talk to Pastor Matthew. Sort of getting used to that. Renee, I'll tell you when to say comments. Stop, all right? Just not yet. You and Ken. No. That's the Spirit of God working in this young man to say, I want to be on the wall. I'm not satisfied not doing anything. We've got a guy battling a life-threatening illness in our church. If he doesn't do this every week, then I'm probably mistaken. But every week, I think he comes up to me and says, get me to the wall. What can I do? Show me where to serve. You know, I frequently have a lot of parents who come to me for help because their adult children have walked away from the Lord. That is crushing. That is painful. Finally, I talked to Helen Van Summeren, who is one of our master's level counselors. I said, Helen, we've got a lot of parents who need help. We need a support group, a Christ-centered, biblically-centered support group who will come together and pray and get on the wall together. Would you consider leading that? In typical Hellenian fashion, she says, well, I've never done this before, but I will pray about it. She enunciates very well, you know that? She actually prayed about it. Unlike a lot of us, when they tell me that, she actually prayed about it and came back to me in a couple weeks and says, you know, I don't know what I'm doing, but I do think God is telling me to do this. I'll go to the wall and I'll report for duty, but I'm going to need your help. She's done that. The group has grown. She's getting ready to launch another support group for parents whose adult children have walked away from the Lord. And each of these people that I've just mentioned, all of them have been gifted divinely, enabled by God himself to report to that part of the wall. They've just got to return the wall into their part. But we're entering a lull in the battle in Nehemiah. They're back to the wall. The enemy seems to have dissipated. What do you do when you seem to be in a time of peace, when the green pastures are all around you and you're not really feeling and sensing conflict. The tendency for most of us is to drop the guard, but that's not Nehemiah's leadership. And as we go on in verse 16, we're going to see that we've got to stay on guard. Look at what it says in the first part of verse 16. From that day on, from the day that God frustrated their plot, their plan, And the enemy scattered. Listen, look at me for a minute. The enemy never leaves permanently. If you're in a ceasefire, you're really not in a ceasefire. They're re-strategizing. They're moving their troops around. Because they're going to come back. And they will always come back until the day you go home to be in glory. So from that day on, they stayed vigilant together. From that day on, there's no... For the next two months. Well, this week, I've got to really be on my knees a lot. No, it's every day on they were on their knees, staying vigilant, staying on guard. Because they knew what one day Peter would write, be sober-minded. You know what that word means? Can I tell you from a counseling perspective who works with addictions? Do you know when you're admired in an addiction long enough, it actually can literally distort and change your thinking almost permanently until the Lord rescues? What makes sense to you who's not an addict is bizarre to the addict. 
And the way an addict thinks is bizarre to you. You can't relate. It doesn't compute. It's no longer rational. It's not linear. It's frenetically interdeposed. It goes back and forth. Be sober-minded means your thinking is dominated by the Word of God. Your thinking is clear because it's the thinking of God Himself. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is our adversary. He's always on the prowl. He's looking for somebody who has low parts of the wall and open spaces. Those are the vulnerable sections. Listen, you have a wall around your heart, Christian brother and sister, it's called salvation. You've got gates in that wall, they're gates of praise. The walls keep the wrong people out, the gates let the right people in. But if your gates are open, you have no discernment, there's an open space. He who is wise will be with wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. You never escape harm when you align yourself with fools. So be sober-minded, be watchful. And we see what Nehemiah does. Half of my servants worked, verse 16, on construction, and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. So he divides the people into two groups. You ready? Here they are, and we're all in them. You're either builders or you're guards. You're either building or you're battling. He divided them all up in these two groups. And here's what it looks like. What am I doing right now as I'm preaching? I'm building. Right? Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for building others up, that it may give grace to those who hear according to the need of the moment. What you're hearing from me, what you're receiving is edification. Hopefully, if I'm preaching along the the word of God, I'm building you up. While I'm building you up, what are you doing? How many of you prayed this morning on the way in here that the worship would resonate in your soul and draw you into the presence of God and fertilize it, getting it ready to receive the implantation of the Word of God? How many of you prayed that your heart would be open to God's Word this morning on your way to church? Last week, somebody told me when I was preaching, it was this service Sunday morning, it felt like the lights went out. All she saw was just me in a black outline. It felt like nobody else was in the sanctuary. Listen, that's God speaking to her. That's the Spirit of God's sword going down into her heart, separating thoughts and motives. You felt that way. I've been like that in people's sermons when I've been listening and and praying, you've got to pray. God, is he speaking to me? And if he's not speaking something I need to hear today, how do I learn it so that I can speak it to those who do? So you're guarding while I'm building. Crisis pregnancy center, do you not think that they're under attack? Do you really think that Satan enjoys having his domain, his stronghold overrun by the gospel and a literal building now in use for the glory of God, there is opposition. and They're going to have a hard time making the money. So we guard, we pray for them while they're building. We pray for our missionaries. We guard them while they're around the world building. 
We pray for each other, right? Because guess what? You know what our enemy wants and you know what your flesh is willing to do and you know what the world's pattern is that you gossip and slander against Christian brothers and sisters. That happens in churches. It doesn't take much. Listen, don't you see this? It doesn't take much for our flesh to rise up and say, I can't believe you did that to me. There is a church in Texas that literally divided. This was a large church established for hundreds of years in their community. About a hundred years, they overstated that. In their community. You know what they divided and split over? One elder got a, did not get as large a piece of ham at their dinner as somebody else in the church. I'm not, I can't even make this up. A church split over a slice of ham. Do you not think we're capable of that? Your adversary, my adversary, will want to sow seeds of discord between you and people who love you, between friendships and relationships and families and marriages, because if he can bring you apart, we're going to see in a minute, he's got you isolated. And their leaders, look at the text, their leaders stood behind the entire people of Judah. Listen, I want to tell you something. That's the people of Judah who were on the wall, not the people of the Jews who were out amidst the enemy. Don't expect the leaders of this church to stand behind you if you're not faithfully building. They stood behind the people of Judah, all those who were building, all those who were on the wall, not the nobles of Tekoa who said, my shoulders are too precious to carry these loads. And when people get on the wall and they return to the wall and each to his work, listen, the, the leaders of this church, the elders and the deacons and the pastors and the ministry leaders, they've got to come behind and they've got to encourage. They've got to trust. You can do the work. God's given you the gifting for it and honor you when you do. But we go to the second principle. How do you handle life when it seems you're not in the midst of conflict? Nehemiah says, get on guard even more. Here's what they did. They each carried a sword. Verse 17, those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each, that, they, that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. What we're seeing is that Nehemiah made sure everybody was equipped with their sword. Whether you're carrying debris, you're carrying water, you're carrying dirt. You're removing debris. Whatever it's, it is that you're doing, you put, a, you put a sword in your hand. And if you've got to have both hands to do your work, you put a sword on your side. And that sword of the Spirit, it's the sword of the Spirit that we're pointing to. It's the Word of God. Now listen, let me give you a statement this morning that I hope will rivet you right in your pew. You ready? If the Bible is the sword of the Spirit, it's the Spirit's sword then don't you think it's good enough for us? If it's, what the word of, if it's what the Spirit of God uses, should the people of God use anything different? The Spirit of God wields the sword, the Word of God. Should the, Spirit, should the people of God wield anything else? 
This is what it means. You walk through life. You get to the wall. You report for duty with your sword, with the word of God. You've got to get it out. You've got to get meditating in it. You've got to know who God is. Get it into your life so you're living it out. You renew your mind so your life is transformed. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Listen, you know somebody that has an addiction. I want to be really careful with this. You think the world's counsel is going to be what they need? You think just finding them the newest promise of medication to change their neuronic activity in their brain so it secretes hormones that will lose the power of that addiction, do you really think that's what's going to work? Because listen, if they stop drinking without their heart of idolatry healed, they'll start another addiction. Transformation has always been, even in our modern age, the word of God's job. And when the people of God build the walls around other people, bringing their walls back to bear, and they're doing it with the word of God, listen, that's the power of transformation. And that's the sword that's on your side. But then it goes on, and they not only carried a sword, they adopted an early warning system. Look at verse 18. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread. Remember that. And we are separated on the wall far from one another. And the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. John MacArthur once gave this illustration from 1984 in Avianca Plain in Spain, flew into the side of a mountain, killing instantly everybody on board. True story. They recovered the black box. And when they began to examine the black box, they heard the English-speaking, computer-synthesized voice, a female's voice, saying when, when the ground proximity warning system triggered its sensors, it kept saying, pull up, pull up, pull up. Here's what the black box recorded. The pilot, evidently thinking the system was malfunctioning, responded, and I quote, shut up, gringo, and switched the system off. And minutes later, plowed straight into the side of that mountain. Listen, when the warning bells go off, it's because the Spirit of God is telling you, pull up, pull up, stop what you're doing. And the way that he warns us is certainly and most accurately through his word. That's why you strap that sword to your side. But it's also through people, godly friends. Remember David and Nathan, the prophet who came to David and said, you are the man. When the spirit of God warns us, it will be like a trumpet whose clarion call rises above the din of construction. You know, the word trumpet in the Hebrew is shofar. Remember that ram's horn? It's capable, really, it's only capable of producing a couple notes. But it was always used to call God's people together. The trumpet shall be to you, number says, 
for a perpetual statute throughout your generations. And when you go to war in your land against the adversary who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets that you may be remembered before the Lord your God and you shall be saved from your enemies. Who's blowing the trumpet in your life? Do you have anybody in your life that's got a trumpet with them? Because many of us are separated on the wall, the text says, far from one another. You know what that means, right? How often do we see each other? For most of us, you see me once a week. And for most of you, I see you once a week. If you look around these pews, most of the people in these pews, you see them once a week. And some of you commute all the way to New York City, down in Philly and Harrisburg. Listen, you're far on the wall. You're separated a great distance. Who do you have in your life that is around you and will blow the trumpet when they see you heading into sin? Or when they see the enemies approaching? When they see the world squeezing you into their mold? See, the trumpet stayed with Nehemiah, right? The man with the trumpet was with him. Because leadership act as watchmen. They're instructed to watch over your souls. I have a friend who's going through some unimaginably, terribly difficult times. This last week, we blew the trumpet. We got four of his friends and we met with them for breakfast. And the only reason we met for breakfast, believe me, TikTok does not have the best food. I hope nobody here owns TikTok. Infinite apologies if you do. The reason we're there is to rally. The reason we're there was to come around with the word of God, the sword. We brought our swords. And what came out of our mouth to our friend was not our Infinite wisdom of our flesh because it's worthless. What came out of our mouths was hope in the word of God. What God is doing and what your enemies are trying to do. Let's pray. Let's commit to pray. That's the trumpet going off and that's the rallying. And if you don't have somebody who's in your life who can blow the trumpet and nobody rallying to you, you are an isolated Christian. And you're likely not going to defeat the enemies. And when that trumpet blows, you rally with full assurance. Look at the end of that passage. Our God will fight for us. That's the trumpet call. The trumpet call is not, hey, here comes all of my experience at at work in your life. That's not what it is. Here comes our God who will fight for us, and I'm going to bring him to you personally. Here's his word. Here's the sword. Let's get it out. And then we go to the fourth principle. They worked, they all worked, and they worked all day. So verse 21 says, So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. Don't you find that interesting? They didn't have a five o'clock horn when they knocked off from work. See, the Jews, let me, let me explain it this way. For the Jew, their day didn't start like ours does. Midnight tonight, Monday begins. Midnight, Monday night, Tuesday begins. That's not how they reckon their days. They reckon their days from sundown to sundown. So when it got dark and they saw three stars in the sky, that was the new day. The new day had come. 
They worked all day from the very break of dawn when the sun came up. They worked all day until that darkness was pierced by those stars. And now you're back to the east gate. Remember the east gate? The gate where Jesus Christ, the morning star, will re-enter Jerusalem to establish his reign on this earth. This is speaking about we work and we work and we work in the kingdom until Jesus Christ comes. And it's getting darker. Listen, look around you. It's getting blacker in this world. It's getting even harder to live your Christian life. Listen, that's okay. Keep working. Report to the wall, each to his work. And one day the morning star is coming and we're going to have our rest. We're going to have our rest for eternity. But now is not the time to rest. So exhort one another every day, Hebrews says, as long it is, as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And then Nehemiah moves us to the fifth principle. How do you build when there's a lull in the battle? Well, they stayed together in fellowship. They didn't drift apart. They moved together. I also said, verse 22, to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. Listen, if you don't get anything else from this message... Can I at least encourage you to get this? Because honestly, and listen to everything I'm about to tell you, I think it's brilliant because it's in the Word. You know what the enemy's trying to do to you, friends? I can tell you from experience. Our enemies are trying to isolate you. They're trying to pull you away from Christian fellowship. They always do this. With amazing regularity, the enemy needs to isolate the Christian from his or her church family. When you struggle with sin and you get discouraged and you think nobody else struggles with sin the degree that you do, you begin to isolate and pull away. They can't understand. Who's blowing your trumpet? Who's blowing the trumpet for you in that time? When our lives get frenetically busy, that's the world. Listen, busy, frenetic living is the world squeezing you into its mold. You just need to know it. And when we get crazy busy and we fall out of the habit of worshiping together, where's the trumpet blower that's blowing the alert in the people to rally? Listen, I saw this constantly in youth ministry as well. We would come back from retreats. And kids would make massive changes to their lives. Sometimes realizing that was what was bringing their spiritual downfall were the friends that they had aligned with. They would change friends. That's hard to do. And then all of a sudden, two, three, maybe at tops, four weeks, unbelievably consistently. In fact, we began to come back from retreats with a strategy not to let this happen. All of a sudden, they disappear from youth ministry. Where'd they go? You know what I would do? I, have, I had in my office when I was a youth pastor, I would, whenever I would go on flights, I would get the vomit bags, and I'd bring them home, and I'd put a note in there to these people and say, man, I am so sick that you're not coming anymore. I'm, I'm nauseous because I miss you so much. You know the mail, the U.S. Postal Office will deliver those? It's amazing. 
I mean, just think, what if you got a vomit bag from the lead pastor? Wouldn't that be exciting? <laughs> With regularity, the enemy will try to isolate you. If you see inside me into the degree of how I struggle with sin, you will run from me. So the safest place is away from you. That's how it works. But there's a measure of safety within biblical fellowship. Look what Nehemiah says. Hey, don't go out of Jerusalem. Come into Jerusalem night and day. Don't go back to your homes. Live in the city. And while we don't want to take that literally, there's a principle in this for us. You pull together in the church, and if you pull together in biblical fellowship, if you're mired in a life group where you live life on life with other people, believe me, the, enemy, the enemy's ability to take your faith down will be severely minimized. Last year in life group, I, I was shocked. Even though I'm expecting this, it shocked me. We have a lady that I, we just fell in love with. Amazing lady. And if you knew her story, you'd even be more amazed. She'd been through a horrific life. The very night that she shared some of the depth of her pain, she never came back again. Listen, that's what the enemy will try to do with you. He can get at you if he moves you away from fellowship. Fellowship is strength. And when you live life on life, your life will be stronger, built on the foundation. Your gates will be operating. Your gates let the right people in. Your walls keep the wrong people out. The gates have to work. And when they work, you let those who are wise into your life. Christians who are built on the foundation that will exhort you daily as long as it's called today so that you cannot be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But there's one more principle, and we see it in verse 23. So, and I want you to pay attention to all these repetition, repetitious words. So neither... I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Now listen, whenever scripture repeats itself, you've got to be alert. Take the sword out and look at it for a little bit and watch the sun glint off of its steel. You've got to see God saying something. The Hebrew language doesn't have exclamation points. They don't have italics. And they don't have underlines and bolds. This is Nehemiah's way of, of saying to us, you've got to listen to this. This is really important. You keep your clothes on. I'm not talking about streakers. I'm not even really referring that Nehemiah didn't want to be caught by their enemies with the pants down. I know that's crude, but it is there. That's not really it, though. It goes deeper than that. It's an incredibly deep statement of saying what we see in Revelation 19. Look behind me because you've got to see this. This is our future Christian brother and sister. Let us rejoice and exult and give Jesus glory. Give God glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. This is all of us one day. And his bride has made herself ready. His bride is the church. Now listen to this. 
It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Do you know that you keep your clothes on when you let your faith live in obedience? When you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, you are dressing, I am dressing in the finest and the whitest linen, preparing the church for one day, her greatest day, the wedding with the lamb. Now listen, every one of us, this is so big. What are you doing to prepare the church for that day? Can I suggest something? That is your highest overarching purpose in life. And maybe your wall is not in a program of this church. Maybe your wall is in your neighborhood because there's unbelieving friends that live all around you. And you're preparing the church for her day by bringing them into the church, by bringing them into the faith. You're at the fish gate. Maybe you're going to be at the fish gate this Thanksgiving when you go home to be with unbelieving family members. You're going to build. Do you have somebody guarding? Do you have somebody praying for you now? Hey, listen, I'm going to be going home. I'm going to be going. Actually, I'm going to be staying here. But for Christmas, I'm going to be hopefully seeing my unsaved brother, Paul. Be seeing him in a couple weeks. You need to be praying for me that I would be able to have the encouragement and the boldness to have an opportunity, a window of opportunity, Colossians 4, to be able to speak the gospel. That's how we work. It's not always in this church, but it's always in the church. What are you doing in your life to prepare the church for her greatest day, her wedding day? You know, I love when I do weddings. Here's what I do. I, I do this every time. Let's pretend I'm doing my most recent wedding I did was right here in this sanctuary. So I'm up here with the groom. And all of a sudden through that door came the bride. She was beautiful. You know what I did? I looked from the bride to the groom to see the joy on his face. As his bride was walking down that aisle towards him. Can't you see that look on the face of Christ? Doesn't that motivate you to get to the wall? And to say, what can I do? How can I be part of the bridal party? The maid of honor whose job it is to prepare the bride for her greatest day. How do I help her to get ready? You don't take your clothes off. You put on more and more white, fine linen, the righteous deeds of the saints, as you make the bride ready for her greatest day, the wedding with Christ. Lord, thank you for Nehemiah. Lord, thank you that you've been reminding us, Father, that when there is what seems to be a lull in the battle, Lord, it's time to stay on guard and to get even better at it. Keep a hold of the Spirit of God's sword, the Word of God. And we listen for that trumpet to blow, and when it blows, we rally around those who are in trouble. We labor 
with all of our might while it is still today before Jesus Christ comes again. We serve together, not isolated. We move together into the church, into the richness and the strength and the security of fellowship. We protect each other when those dark times come, the times and night when our enemy is most active. We make the church ready for her greatest day and the righteous deeds of the saints. Lord, I pray that every person here will return to the walls of the kingdom of God and do their part, the part that you have already created for them to do, Ephesians 2.10, that you've given each of us the divine enablement to do, that you've poured out the exact amount of that enablement to do exactly what you're asking us to do. Lord, let us report to duty and be the faithful people of God. We love you. We thank you. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.